Thanks for joining us on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. Let's listen as Laura teaches us from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. All week six resources can be found on our website, www.daytonwomeninthewordcom backslash 2-Timothy-week-6. Hi, ladies, and welcome to week six of our summer study in the book of 2 Timothy. I am so glad you're here. Now, I used to teach second grade, and like any teacher worth her salt, I had a teacher bag, much like this, and it always weighed as much as an anvil, and all the teachers said amen, right? Well, there were different things in it then than I have today, but it was essential to my work as a teacher I lugged it home with me every single night and every single day. I took it back to school with maybe half of my plans done or half of my papers graded. Have you ever carried something really heavy before? I'm envisioning moving out of dorm rooms with huge couches in your hands. Or maybe you think of an emotional burden like mental illness or grief or overwhelm. Well, our passage today in 2 Timothy holds lots of sin, and it is heavy. Sin, 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 and 25 more sins. If you outlined 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9, you may have noticed how heavy this list is, both in meaning and in length. This world's heaviness is not our Father's design. Yet he reminds us through the Holy Spirit, through his word, and through brothers and sisters in Christ, through their correction, that he has already carried all of this heavy sin to the cross for us. This is our main truth for today. God's truth reminds us to put down the sin that Jesus already carried to the cross. I'm going to say it again. God's truth reminds us to put down the sin that Jesus already carried to the cross. The price of your freedom has been paid. Yet you probably know well that we still live in a world that's full of sin, which makes it hard to live like we're free. We get weighed down. We belong to Jesus. We have been freed by him, but we don't always act like it. Those of us who follow Jesus have already received salvation, and we have an ongoing need for sanctification. According to the ESV Global Study Bible, sanctification is the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. This sanctification is both work and gift. The work, while it requires our ongoing yielding and submission to the Spirit and repentance to lay down our sins, the gift, oh, the gift, the gift is that we get to look more and more like Jesus right now. We get to live more freely right now. We don't have to wait for heaven for those gifts. Today, as we work through 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9, we'll ask three main questions about sin. First, what is sin like in the last days? We'll read 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 4. Second, we'll ask, who are the sinners? And we'll read 2 Timothy 3, 5 to 9. And there are a few surprises there. 
We'll close with our third question. How is a believer supposed to respond? There are a lot of Christianese words in the text today, so we'll take some time to slow down and look at them in Greek occasionally. Defining them will help experienced Bible readers pierce the numb familiarity they have toward these words and will help new Bible readers get their footing with what's unfamiliar. Also, be sure to be on the lookout for some of our Second Timothy themes as we move. Teaching, enduring suffering, power, confidence, and remembering. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the good gifts you give that you bring us, that you, that you bring us to you, that you make us look like you, that you are not willing to let us just sit in our sin, but you transform us to be new and to be yours, to be free forever. Amen. Go ahead and open up your binder to 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. The scripture from this week and then the weeks before and after are what I like to call the truth section of 2 Timothy. Paul's warnings and encouragements focus on the essential and infallible nature of God's truth. Our passage today is sandwiched by two portions of the letter that encourage Timothy mostly in the good work he's already been part of and call him up into pursuing more of the same godliness. Our session today serves as a contrast. Just as it's helpful to know what to pursue, it's also helpful to know what to flee, as Paul exhorted Timothy earlier in 2.22. Today, you might notice that Paul will compare and contrast some of the exact phrases from other places in 2 Timothy, and especially in the preceding section we studied last week, 2 Timothy 2.14-26. If you notice any of these for the first time as we read, go ahead and pause and circle them. Let's start by reading 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 4. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger. We're not going to finish that sentence quite yet. Let's go back to the beginning of this. It starts with the word but, and that is one of those transition words. We've got to look back. Last week, Jillian talked about how Timothy is called to flee foolishness and pursue fruitfulness, firmly and lovingly teaching with the hope that his hearers would come to knowledge of the truth, that true knowledge of who God is. But, Paul says here, there are some things that will prevent some people from ever coming to knowledge of the truth. He says this happens in the last days. Now, the concept of the last days is highly disputed among Bible scholars. It can mean this time of tension, the now and not yet, between um, stretching from Timothy's day to ours today, where we've seen Jesus fulfill prophecy and reconcile us to God, but we have not yet seen the restoration of all creation. 
The phrase can also refer to God's final judgment and final restoration of creation that's yet to come. Here, Paul specifically instructs Timothy to avoid the people he describes, so it follows that Timothy is living in the last days. Paul says times will be difficult because people will be lots of bad things. Since several of these overlap, I organized them into three groups. And I'm not sure this was intentional by Paul, and it's not the only way to organize them, but I thought it would help us as we zoom in a little closer today. These are sins characterized by self-love, a desire to be number one, malice, a desire to hurt others, and self-indulgence, a desire to satisfy every impulse. It seems Paul began this list intentionally. What else is the beginning of sin than a heart that is only focused on self? Other sins in the list that are connected with self-love are being proud, arrogant, swollen with conceit. That's a word Paul also uses twice in 1 Timothy, and it literally means to wrap in a mist, to be blind with pride or be rendered foolish. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God and unappeasable. Let's take a closer look at that word unappeasable. When I first read it, I thought it might be a synonym for being ungrateful. Other English translations say truce breaker or unforgiving, which didn't really help clear things up for me. The Greek word did help me. In Greek, it's aspandas. Why don't you say that with me? Aspandas. It literally means without libation. While a libation today means any alcoholic drink, a libation in ancient Israel was specifically a a drink poured out as a sacrifice. This often happened when two people entered into a treaty or covenant. So the word aspandas is used figuratively to describe someone unwilling to enter into a covenant. A covenant in general is a solemn agreement. But in the context of the Bible, The word covenant brings to mind this whole grand story of God's rescue plan for humanity. He made a covenant with the Israelites that one day he would use their family to save the world and invite the rest of the world into that covenant too. What could be the root of aspandas, this hostility toward God and his covenant? Unwillingness to be poured out. Is it because it seems to this hard-hearted person that they are required to do too much? Someone who is consumed with self-love misses out on the great gift of compassion God offers. She may think she's holding out on this deal because she will lose too much, but that is a lie she believes because she's only ever looking inward. If she looked up, She could see that this covenant is imbalanced only in its generosity toward her, that the things she's clutching to so tightly are worthless compared to the good gifts God gives. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he, that's Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. When we redirect our love from ourselves toward God, the one truly worthy of it, we see that entering into covenant with him brings bountiful gifts, like salvation, 
the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, adoption, reconciliation, and freedom from sin, so much more. It's interesting that the opposite of aspandos is the Greek word spendo, which also has a literal and figurative meaning. So literally, aspandos means without libation, and spendo means to pour out as a drink offering. Figuratively, aspandos means unwilling to enter into covenant. And spendo means to fully devote oneself, to be ready to sacrifice. And in fact, it alludes to a final and full sacrifice with the picture of pouring out one's blood. Paul uses the word spendo of himself in 2 Timothy 4.6, just a few paragraphs after this, when he closes the letter in anticipation of his death. Daisy will talk more in week eight about the faith Paul had to hold his life loosely for the sake of God's kingdom. The second category of sins we see are sins of malice, deliberate wrong done toward others and God. These are people who are abusive, unholy, that means impure or separated from God, heartless, that Greek word means the opposite of cherish, slanderous, not loving good, and the Greek here is more forceful, it means opposing good, and treacherous, which makes me think of Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus. Let's take a closer look at what the ESV translates as abusive. The Greek word means blasphemous, and my Greek dictionary gave calumnious as a synonym. Well, don't you just love when your dictionary makes you pull out another dictionary? According to Merriam-Webster, calumnious means the act of uttering false charges or misrepresentations maliciously calculated to harm another's reputation. So this is not abuse in the physical sense, but a systematic verbal assault on someone to isolate and ruin them. Let's also unpack that word slanderous. The Greek word is diabolos. Say that, diabolos. Sometimes it's used generally to mean slanderer or accuser, and that's the way Paul is using it here in this list. But it's important to keep in mind that elsewhere in the New Testament, it's used to refer to a literal evil being who is viciously opposed to God and his children. In English, we use the word the devil, and this is also where we get the word diabolical. These sins of malice Paul describes are chilling. They describe a cold, calculating scheme to destroy all good. They are in stark contrast to the way God cherishes his people, how tender and patient he is with them. They make obvious the need for his transformative grace, which cultivates the opposite of what is highlighted here. Loyalty, love, and truth. So, there are sins of self-love, there are sins of malice, and we also see people who are self-indulgent. They are lovers of money, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, without self-control, brutal, and reckless. They do not show any restraint. The word picture in Greek for reckless is someone literally falling forward headlong, which implies absolute injury or death will follow. Someone who does whatever they want, Whenever they want, someone who submits to the path of least resistance shows weakness and is headed for destruction. 
They act powerless to the sin crouching at the door that God warns about in Genesis 4. But as Paul has already shown us earlier in 2 Timothy, God puts inside us the power we need to rule over sin. In this section, we looked at sins marked by self-love, malice, and self-indulgence. Now, Paul could have just said that sentence, right? The one that I just said. Why does he list out so many things? Well, I want you to picture this. Imagine that you're driving on the highway. You're going really fast because you're late. You glimpse this yellow sign off to the side, but you keep going. Then there's another sign, something with flashing lights, and you don't stop. You see some caution tape remnants and then a red sign. You begin to slow, and then you notice there's some progressive billboards up ahead, those kinds that have one word at a time, and they say the words, you are headed off a cliff. The multitude of signage makes you slow down. You hit the brakes and pay attention. You heed the warning and stop to fully comprehend it. Paul's lengthy list also made me wonder how much sin is too much. James addresses that in his letter when he confronts, confronts hypocrisy in Christians who uphold much of the law but treat the poor with contempt. In James 2, 10 and 11, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. This is sobering. Look again at the list here in your binder. We are not called to mitigate or minimize these sins. We do not get to keep a scorecard and then oh, breathe a sigh of relief that there's only a few marks against us. What a terrifying truth. We need the power of the Spirit in us to rule over sin and act rightly. That leads us to our second big question. Who are the sinners here? Let's read 2 Timothy 3, 5 to 9. So in verse 5, this is finishing this long list of sins until it says that these people, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. We end up seeing three groups in this part of the passage. The first group is people. That's not very specific, is it? The second group is those who creep. They come from among this big group of people. And then the third is weak women, and they are the prey of those who creep. So let's start with that first group, people. In verse 2, Paul says, people will be, which made me think this part of his letter would be about standing firm on the truth in a world that doesn't value truth, until I got to verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Wait a minute. Godliness means wholehearted devotion to God. People
people of the world usually have no use for the appearance of godliness, people in the church do. Specifically, religious leaders in Jesus' context and a variety of religious figures in Paul's context all were people whose power and influence depended on their appearance of godliness. Now, I had first pictured the church surrounded by a world of sinners, but what Paul is depicting is a church full of the same stuff that's outside it. We see two important words here that have been mentioned earlier in the letter, power and deny. So let's flip back in your binder to 2 Timothy 1.7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Believers have the power of the Holy Spirit inside them. Now, let's go to 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Those who deny Jesus will be denied by him. So Paul is warning Timothy, there will be people inside the church who, instead of acknowledging the power of the Spirit in Jesus' resurrection, deny it. This is no small issue. These people are false Christians. Their self-love, malice, self-indulgence, and hypocrisy pose a danger to believers and dishonor God's name. They will be held to account for this. That's the first group. This uh, false teachers is the second group, those who teach, or those who creep, sorry. These false teachers come from among the false Christians, and they in particular are the reason why Paul tells Timothy to avoid the first group. They are characterized by creeping into households and capturing weak women. The historical context helps us. False teachers of the day couldn't talk much with women in public because of the infrequency of mixed gender groups. So they would visit women at home to manipulate them in their households into giving money. We'll focus more on these women a bit later, but it's clear here the false teachers are purposely preying on the weak. We also see that they oppose the truth like Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. In your study guide, you can see these men are Pharaoh's magicians who tried to copy the miracles that Moses performed with the power of God in Exodus. They did this to try to assuage Pharaoh that his divine power and authority were not being threatened. Spoiler alert, they were not successful. And the book of Exodus in verse 9 in this section both show that their folly was plain to all. We see that these false teachers are corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. The Greek word for disqualified is the opposite of the word approved that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 2.15. Let's flip back there in your binder. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed Rightly handling the word of truth. These false teachers are the opposite of what Paul is calling Timothy to be. Approved, unashamed, and rightly handling truth. 
Paul has personal experience with false teachers and warns his people about them in his other epistles. I'm going to share part of Paul's first letter to Timothy. Flip there with me in your Bible. And as I read, underline words that have come up anywhere in 2 Timothy. You'll probably find quite a few. 1 Timothy 6, 3-9. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is a great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Many of the sins we've discussed today surround people Paul has encountered already who say they are preaching the good news of Jesus and are not. This is dangerous, especially for those whose minds are not protected from insidious attacks. The example Paul shares here is weak women. Oh, these weak women. This is a single Greek word that means little women, and the Olive Tree Strong's Dictionary suggests it's used with a tone of derision toward the women for their foolishness. The InterVarsity Press Bible Background Commentary gives more context for this. Women were less educated than men at the time of Paul's letter. Women may have been more prone to quickly switch religions because they didn't have social standing to lose in any religious circles. They were superstitious. They wanted to cover all their bases, and they didn't care to acquire wisdom that would lead to knowledge of the truth. What do we know about these little women? Well, first we see they are burdened with sins. This is a heavy load they are choosing to carry. Since they have been busy hopping around from religion to religion, it's likely they have been invited to unburden themselves by yielding to completely to Jesus. They have chosen to keep the load on their own backs instead, further weakening and overwhelming them. The little women are also led astray by various passions. In the Greek word, Jillian shared with you last week is the same that uh, Paul tells Timothy when he says, flee youthful passions. The little women are always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Able is the Greek word dynamai, related to the word strengthened, and calls back 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, 1, 12, and 2, 1. These women are not strengthened because they are not willing to rely on the one who gives strength. Flip back in your binder to 2 Timothy 2, 25 to 26. Let 
This is what Jillian shared last week about correcting these opponents with gentleness, and then God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let me... Sorry, I lost my place. Okay. So the contrast here between these two sections is clear. Those who repent of their sin have knowledge of the truth, which leads to freedom from captivity. The little women do not repent, but hold tightly to their heavy burden of sin. And this means they never arrive at a true knowledge of who God is and what he has to offer. So they remain captured by Diabolos, the accuser. You do not have to look far today to find this playing out in our churches. Biblical illiteracy is a timely concern for women in the church. Just like the women in Timothy's church, we have arrived at this juncture because of our circumstances, which are often out of our control, and our choices, which are in our control. So even though there's a complex factors at play, even injustices in some situations, we are culpable for the decisions that we make. We are responsible for our response. When we take helpful books like Bible study workbooks and make them our only spiritual food, that is a problem of our own making. When we look for Christian self-help books that are versions of what's trendy in the secular world, that they say what our itching ears want to hear, that's our problem too. We do not have to stay in ignorance and captivity like little women. Those of us who are in Christ are free of condemnation and sin and death. And when we soak in scripture daily, we are less likely to forget the truth. Now, if you're listening today, you are already making a decision to be in the word and to know truth. You've spent hours this summer opening up your Bible and using tools to understand what it means. I have three ideas to help you continue this truth pursuit after summer study ends. One, you can start looking to the word instead of the world to satisfy. Run to it for answers, for intimacy, for conviction. Run to it for clarity, for courage, for comfort. Read it, memorize it, sing it, listen to it, meditate on it. This can help you build rituals into your life that point you to it. Secondly, as you study the Bible more, look for its true meaning instead of what you wish it meant. Now this takes a lot of discipline, it takes time and energy, and a willingness to sit with discomfort when we have to move through difficult passages in scripture. And thirdly, this is so important, as you begin to know the word more, Hold everything else up to it. So when you have friends recommend life-changing books or well-spoken influencers, compare what they say to the word of God. Protect your mind from people who say things that sound good but are actually empty or false. When we are strengthened by grace and knowledgeable of the truth in God's word, we are not little women who are easily deceived. We can guard ourselves and each other from false teaching, running hard toward truth and freedom. This leads us to our third big question. How should a Christ follower respond to this? 
Well, we can find an explicit call to response in the text and an implicit one. Let's start with the explicit call, to look outward and be wary. The 19 items list in verses 1 to 5 is sandwiched by two imperatives, understand and avoid. The response words are right there. And now remember who the first audience is. It's Timothy. He is a pastor. He has a very special, important job here, and Paul is speaking specifically to that. Paul gave a similar warning to other pastors when he left them in the book of Acts. Acts 20, 28 to 30, um, is a record of Paul saying these words. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And remember, these are pastors or leaders. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. With this lengthy list, Paul is telling Timothy, be vigilant, be ready, start teaching about this proactively, and when you see it crop up in your church, swiftly rebuke it. Even those who are not pastors can practice understanding and avoiding, though. We can read the Bible deeply so we can discern when people's hearts are hard and make sure that we are not under their influence. Next week, Megan will talk in detail about how useful the Bible is for teaching and correcting believers. You'll see how it can strengthen us to be wise and wary of creeping false teachers in our own sin tendencies. So that's the explicit call to look out and be wary. The implicit call, the words that aren't exactly here in the text, cause us to look inward and repent. The first audience is Timothy, and the second audience is us and possibly the church in Ephesus. As I read this, my mind was first overwhelmed by this bleak picture painted of how horrible the world is outside the church. And then, remember, that sucker punch comes in in verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. What I at first thought was an indictment of unbelievers quickly became an arrow straight to my own heart. So after the Spirit convicts us to look inward and not just outward, how do we respond to this tendency towards sin in ourselves? We can look up. As I studied this passage, I was pulled into the phrase, burdened with sins. The Greek word means the accumulation of great, overwhelming heaps or piles on something. I picture the dishes in my sink, maybe. <laughs> this account of 28 sins is burdensome to read. Both the meaning of the text and the length of the list remind us how heavy a load sin is to bear. It reminds me of a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, nasah. Why don't you say that with me? Nasah. It means lift up, to bear, to carry. And it can also mean to forgive, using the word picture of carrying away sin. In week two, I shared how God calls his children to hard and holy work, and he strengthens us to do it. He doesn't make the work easier. He makes us more powerful to accomplish it. This is not how he responds to sin, though. No. 
He does not make us stronger to carry our sin burden. He lifts it and carries it for us. Now, I want you to open your Bible with me and turn to Isaiah 51. We're going to hop over quite a bit of scripture. So it's going to be easier for you to keep up if you've got your Bible open with me. Isaiah 51 is about in the middle. Do you remember the road signs I was talking about earlier? Do not go over this cliff. Remember that that's what Isaiah is doing. He's God's mouthpiece, and God is telling the Israelites, the ones who are about to be enslaved in captivity because of their um, perpetual sin, he's about to deliver a message of freedom and promise for them. So let's start with Isaiah 51.1. I'm not going to read every verse, just some highlights. Isaiah 51.1, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Skip down to the next stanza, Isaiah 51.4. Pay attention to me, my people, and listen to me, my nation. Keep moving down to verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. Keep moving down to verse 9. Wake up, wake up. Keep moving down all the way to verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself up, stand up, Jerusalem. And then move down to verse 21. So listen to this suffering and drunken one. And then 52. We're going to camp out here for just a few verses. 52, 1. Isaiah says, God, God is saying this through Isaiah. Wake up, wake up. Put on your strength, Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer enter you. Stand up, shake the dust off yourself. Take your seat, Jerusalem. Remove the bonds from your neck, captive daughter Zion. Scooch down a few more verses to verse 6. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. When God is telling these people, therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, they will know on that day that I am he who says, here I am. God is saying, pay attention. Wake up, wake up, wake up. I'm coming down. And then in Isaiah 53, he talks very specifically about Jesus who's coming. Let's look at Isaiah 53, 4. This passage uses the word Nassah. Surely he bore or Nassad our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Keep looking down. Let's scoot down to verse 12. Yet he Nassad the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Remember the people who break only one piece of the law are transgressors. The little women in 2 Timothy 3.6 are not the only ones burdened by sin. It is a weight every person for all time since the garden has carried. But God, he says, wake up, listen. I am sending my cherished son to you, a people who do not cherish anything. Hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, Isaiah prophesies here about the heavy cross God's son would Nassau carry, a cross that weighed as much as all the sins of humanity, past, present, and future. And today, he is still able to Nassau your sins, sister, but it requires you to put them down. Have you unburdened yourself to him yet? 
let me tell you a story about another little woman, someone who desperately needed a burden lifted. And we're going to go back to Genesis, where we see Abraham. He is the father of this promised, precious nation of Israel. And he has just had his son named um, to fulfill that promise. But only, only after he made a baby with his slave Hagar because he didn't think God would make good on his word. And sin, as always, throws a wrench in things and has a far-reaching ripple effect of deep hurt. Abraham kicks Hagar out of the house to die in the desert with their son Ishmael. In Genesis 21, 15 to 19, we get to see how she responds when she and her son run out of water. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and she sat down opposite him a good way off about the length of a bowshot, for she said, let me not look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite him, she, Nassad, lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, Nassad, the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation." Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Earlier in Genesis 16, Hagar called God the God who sees. He intervened when she was desperate before, and it's likely this is why she was ready to nassah, to lift up her voice to him again. Oh, what a powerful, gracious, merciful Father God we have. Because of him, Paul ends this passage with hope. One pattern I noticed at the end of each section in this chunk of 2 Timothy is that there is a predicted outcome for the people described. In 2 Timothy 3.9, Paul writes, But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. Now, let's go back to these people. He's talking about Janus and Jambres here. Earlier, we discussed how they were copying Yahweh's miracles while Moses was telling Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. Do you know how the story ends? If you're unfamiliar with it, you can read its beginning in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh's plan was to keep Israel enslaved and maintain his status as divine ruler, and that didn't pan out. God sent 10 debilitating plagues to Egypt and protected the Israelites from everyone. He delivered them out of Egypt, carrying bags heavy with treasures and valuables that were freely given to them by the Egyptians. God parted the Red Sea for Israel and then brought those same waves crashing down on the heads of those Egyptian soldiers who pursued them. God showed himself to Moses in Israel and dwelt in their tabernacle. He spoke to them, taught them, received their offerings, conquered the promised land for them. He kept his promises to them, even though they strayed from the law. He chastised and corrected them in their sin and eventually exiled them so they would return to him. He sent his son 
to live and to die and to rise among them so they, Israel, and now all people can be freed from captivity forever. The thought that a few magic tricks performed by these two little men could stand up to this truly epic plan of God's is absurd. Just as false Christians have only an appearance of godliness, the false teachers have only an appearance of wisdom and power. They will soon be utterly exposed when their lives are pitifully juxtaposed with the awesome glory of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and one day returned. So let's bring it home. We are all burdened with sin. Today, we examine sins and people marked by self-love, malice, and self-indulgence. We saw how hypocrites in the church will be exposed by truth. Jesus, oh Jesus, he has already carried all sin for all time to the cross. Sin and death were defeated there forever when he died and rose again victorious. If you have never asked Jesus to save you and rescue you from your sin, you can do that today. And if you already have, if you've already asked him for that, he has saved you. He has already made you into a new creation. But like we talked about back when I spoke in week two, we get caught in the undercurrent of sin in this world. We forget who God is and who we are. We act like we don't belong to him sometimes. But God, he is a faithful and persistent teacher, isn't he? He reminds us of the truth in his word, through the Holy Spirit convicting us, and through our brothers and sisters who correct us. He sanctifies us. So over time, we look more and more like him. We are responsible for our response. When we are reminded of the truth, we can repent. And that repentance, turning from sin, brings us back to knowledge of the truth where we belong as God's children. God's truth reminds us to put down the sin that Jesus already carried to the cross. Today, we examined Paul's call to Timothy and to us. We are to look outward and be wary, look inward and repent Look up, nassah our eyes, to be reminded that we know the one who nassahs our sin, and we know how the story ends. Sister, you are cherished. Earlier in the Acts passage we read, Paul reminds these leaders that they must fiercely protect these people because they were bought with the blood of Christ. Your freedom was purchased at the greatest price. And you know what? God says you are worth it. In Matthew 18.6, Jesus himself describes how worth it you and his other children are. When he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We do not have to be relegated to the status of scorned little women. We are fiercely protected and tenderly called God's little ones. 
My co-teacher Daisy mentioned that the heavy load the little women carry reminds her of women who pick up shame again and again because they feel they haven't paid enough for their sin. I have been that person. The more shame I carried, the more I sinned. And then the more I sinned, the more shame I carried. Ladies, listen up. Listen carefully. The only thing that smashed this vicious cycle and made me victorious was truth found in the word of God. I asked God to give me a desire to open the Bible, and he answered. And as I fed myself truth, I saw clearly the lie I had been believing. Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for believers because he has already carried the burden. The redemptive work of the cross is complete. God's truth reminds us to put down the sin that Jesus already carried to the cross. Today, you can unburden yourself of the heavy load of sin by putting it down and repenting. Whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time or the millionth time, join me in repenting of sin and remembering God's truth. Now, help me prayers are part of repentance. God, help me obey. Help me honor you. Help me be more patient. And sometimes all I can muster out is the word help. Psalm 121 says, God is indeed our helper. Today, I also want you to try another way to pray. Try starting your prayer with give me and ending it with a heart quality you want or something you want your heart to desire. You might utter words like this. God, I want to want to love you. God, give me a heart that longs for you more than anything. God, I want to want to know you. Give me a hunger for your word. God, I want to want to be like you. God, give me a deep love for someone I've given up on. Pause me right now, and I want you to take a minute to write down your prayer and then say those words out loud. Paul begins Colossians 3 by urging the Colossae church to act like they've been risen with Christ. My grandpa used to say, act like you've been there, son. Paul tells them to put to death all sin because Jesus became sin crucified and lists sins out like he did to Timothy in our passage. We'll close our time today with what he says next about their sanctification and what they should pursue in Colossians 3, 9 to 17. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Let's pray. Oh God, I am so thankful today for your power. And you know, just words seem too small right now to adequately thank you for it. I feel the same way about the way you redeem us. You free us from sin, and then you give us the gift of working on our hearts so we look like you over time. Thank you for meeting us. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for receiving us and calling us your little ones. We love you so much, Lord. Amen. Oh, he is so good, isn't he? I'm excited for our reading next week. This week, we'll begin reading 2 Timothy 3.10 to 4.5, where you'll see some connections to this topic of truth we've been spending some time on. Your homework tool to try out this week is paraphrasing. I'd recommend taking a couple days to study the text first, using the tools you've already learned, and then, after you've prayed, read it several times, and taken some notes, Try writing down 2 Timothy 4, 3-5 in your own words. For more help with this tool, please visit our website and look at the At Home in the Word video series to help you. You know I love it when you share what you're learning online or with other women, and if you choose to use social media, you can use the hashtag DWITW2Timothy. Oh, sisters, we are almost done. Move with me steady on. And as you keep opening up your Bible this week, be blessed by the power of truth to change people's hearts and prevail against evil forever. Thanks for tuning in today. Here on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast, you can listen to this summer's teachers throughout the remainder of our study with a new lecture being released every Wednesday. All resources for summer study can be found on our website, DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash 2-Timothy-Resources. Grace be with you.